I'm G. Scott, and this is Leaving a Legacy with the king of Twitter, Josiah Johnson. Nobody lives forever, but your legacy does. Follow me, G. Scott, on this journey to discover how some of our most influential public figures plan to leave their legacy on this world. Man, I'm super excited about my next guest. He played his college basketball at UCLA. He is the son of former NBA basketball player Marcus Johnson. He is the executive producer and host of Out of Pocket on Buckets and Wave TV. And let's be real. He is the king of Twitter. As a matter of fact, it says it in his name at King Josiah 54. Josiah Johnson, thank you for joining us, brother. Right, thank you so much for having me, Legend. I, I appreciate that that illustrious uh, intro you gave me. Well, man, look here. I appreciate what you do for all of us on Twitter. Let me just get to it because the one thing about you, Josiah, I have had an opportunity to talk to you before. You are one of the most humble cats in the world. So you're not going to do the bragging. I'm going to do the bragging. You are no doubt the king of Twitter. Simplify it for us. How in the world do you do it? Well, I have such a such an extensive background in production, man. There's so many so many hours put in. That's the one thing that you can't uh, circumvent in any game that you want to be successful in. So came up in this game starting like 2005 in sports production, worked at like NFL Network, Showtime, a bunch of different spots. Had a show on Comedy Central called Legends of Chamberlain Heights, uh, animated series that ran for two seasons. And that's where I really learned just the ins and outs of social. And, and that was more out of necessity at that point. It was that show was my baby. I love the show. I wanted to keep it on as long as possible. Realized that social would be a great avenue and a great lane to be able to do that. So I just took a, you know, full deep dive into social, into the world, started understanding what, you know, trend strategy, all types of the different components that made people successful in the social space. And then just try to institute a lot of that stuff in my own tweeting and my own habits. Legends of Chamberlain Heights was unfortunately canceled in 2017. So I moved all of that knowledge and expertise I gained into my own social media and have been able to grow my platforms very successfully and very well. So just really, really appreciative of, you know, people like yourself giving me opportunity to come on shows like this and talk about it, but also just the, the work, man. A lot of people just don't realize they see you kind of when you get to the top, don't realize the journey, don't realize the climb, but a lot of hard work was put into this, and now I'm reaping the benefits of all that hard work. Uh, okay. I hear everything you said, but I need you to do me a favor. Like I, like I, I need you to do me a favor. I have been asking. I've been hinting. Like, I want to fly to where you are and sit down, and I want to wake, not technically wake up with you, but I want to see you wake up in the morning and see what you do. Is there a room you go into? Is this just a laptop? Is this on your phone? Like, how do you come up with the stuff that you do on Twitter? I don't want to, like, there's some secret, man. What do you do? Well, I've got, I mean, I got a sports and athletic background. I was fortunate and blessed to get a scholarship to play basketball at UCLA. And the thing about playing basketball at UCLA, when you're in that locker room with the 13 to 15 other guys, there's a lot of clowning, a lot of jokes, a lot of things that go around. And you got to be quick on your toes. You got to be fast. I've also been blessed in my professional life to work at companies like NFL Network and work in highlights. And I'm sure, as you know, when you, when you work in highlights, uh, those things go quick. So right when that game ends, the talent needs a highlight. They're reading that stuff sometimes while the show's on the air. You're running in trying to make sure all the information's correct because, you know, if Rich Eisen or somebody like that gets your shot sheet and the information's not accurate and he says something on air that gets him roasted, 
Uh, you please believe once a commercial break happens or after the show, you're going to hear about it. So I kind of live with that constant just threat of fear and everything I do has got to be perfect. It's got to be correct. So when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I'll do is just check social, check Twitter, see what's going on in the world and see if I have any, any good commentary or any takes on it. But I try to just be as fast and as quick on the draw as possible and also try to be as consistent as possible in terms of the level of content that I put out. There's a lot of times, you know, people joke about leaving stuff in the drafts. There's a lot of things that I leave in the drafts. I'm like, yo, this is, this isn't going to be good. And, and, and G, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of haters on social, right? So there's a lot of people who want to see me fall and a lot of people who are rooting against me. So I try to make them as miserable as possible every single day, every single minute of the day. I try to, I keep my haters busy. You know, I keep my haters busy hating, but also don't give them anything that they can use as leverage against me to try and clown or do anything. So I live in that, that constant fear, man. I've got haters that are just all around ready to troll me, ready to say mean, nasty stuff if my stuff doesn't hit. So the only way to stop them from doing that is make sure I put out content that performs at a high level because then they got to eat their words and then they got to backtrack and then they got to delete those ratio tweets and all that other stuff you see on social where people try to come and clown like, yeah, I'm not having any of that here on, on my block. Well, you know, speaking of someone who is a big fan of yours, the King, the King James called you the GOAT, got on Twitter and said that you were the GOAT and said it, it's in your name. Tell us about what that was like to have LeBron James come out there and say, you're the GOAT. Well, obviously, I remember that day, June 10th, 2021, a day that will live in infamy in the, in the Josiah lore. But watching the Nets game, uh, obviously, Bruce Brown uh, took an ill-advised floater. The funny thing is, though, I, I was, I, you know, I'll share this with you. I was, I had a, a pastrami sandwich that day from the spot. Giamello is one of my favorite spots in, in Los Angeles, out in Burbank. So I'm eating the sandwich, sandwich delicious, put way too many peppers on it. My stomach started bubbling late in the fourth quarter, so I had to go run and use the facilities so my wife, I got the door cracked open trying to hear what's going on in the game. My wife is kind of relaying play by play. You know, she's doing, she's doing her best. Mike Breen giving me, giving me the play by play scoop. So I throw that tweet up and, you know, I thought it was going to be successful when I, when I, when I tweeted it, but, uh, I come back out and watching the end of the game, minding my business. Lo and behold, I see LeBron show up and I'm like, yo, is this really LeBron? I see the verified check. Obviously it's the King James handle. I'm like, there's no way that LeBron James disengaged with this tweet, but then we proceeded to go back and forth a few times commentary, then he called me the GOAT. And as a lot of people know, LeBron James is my favorite player in NBA history. He's my GOAT. And I've, I've told anybody who's willing to listen, dealt with a lot of hate and negativity uh, in response to that. But to have somebody that you consider to be the GOAT in basketball call you the GOAT for what you're doing is honestly amazing. And I work at Wave, and the people at Wave actually got it framed for me. So I got the frame of that LeBron tweet in my house. I see it every time I walk into my my house is right right near my front doorway. And I also just look at it anytime I'm feeling down and out or anytime I'm feeling like anybody is disrespecting me in a professional level, whether that's not giving me a big enough bag or not giving me a job opportunity that I feel like I'm qualified for, I'll go look at it. It's kind of like Notre Dame has that like play like a champion today sign that they all bang when they go out in the field. I, I bang the LeBron sign whenever I'm doing anything just to remind me to keep grinding and to also remind me this is what happens when you, when you work hard, you become successful and people take notice. So obviously June 10th, is now a holiday for me. Every June 10th, I will celebrate uh, that moment that LeBron reached out. But also just LeBron is a, a stand-up individual. Everything he's done for Ohio, Miami, Los Angeles, obviously on, on a professional level, but also just what he's done with his charitable endeavors and efforts. So to get that co-sign and love from LeBron was honestly really special. But now it's like, all right, where do I go from here? I need Beyonce. I need our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I need I need somebody else to give me that co-sign to keep, keep that ship heading in the right direction. I got I to gotta tell you, my man, I have been following you for some time. 
And one of the biggest reasons, I thought you were funny from the beginning, but I need to share with you one of the biggest reasons why I really did follow you and why I really did see greatness in you. And the reason is this. You do come from a basketball family. Make no mistake about it. And we're going to get to that in a second because, let's be real, one of the other people that they say is the GOAT, MJ, had your daddy on his wall when he was a youngster. We'll get to that in a second. But I want to talk about Raymond from White Man Can't Jump. And, and, and I'm telling you right now, bro, I promise you, I saw the comedic genius in your father, Raymond, played by Marcus Johnson, that role right there. Talk about back then. Do you know how infamous that scene is? And do you even remember your father playing that role in White Man Can't Jump? I remember it very well. I was like, I think nine years old when he auditioned for it. But the thing about me and my dad is whenever he would get scripts, I would help him practice. So I would read lines. So I remember reading that script and just being super fascinated by, you know, Sidney Dean and Billy Ho and just kind of the whole world. And obviously Ron Shelton was huge at that point for Bull Durham and other, other films that he had done. So I remember reading that role and just the way that my dad was able to take that character, Raymond, which was loosely based on some real life characters, kind of all melded together, but take that character, make it his own. But I got to go to set a few times and he's a method actor. So he would walk around the house looking like that for the better part of like two or three months and would be in character and kind of just like every time you look at him, we're like, dad, go shave dog. Like, come on, bro. Like, like all the scraggly raggedy face and all that. But he really, you know, took that role to heart. And I remember being at the premiere when it went, you know, the first time that anybody had seen it in a, in a theater in the audience and their just reaction to the scene. And he had ad libbed the Mike Tyson line. He was like, no, no, this ain't Raymond. No, that was, that was him doing his, his best Mike Tyson impersonation. Which, which, you know, needs a little work, but that, that's, that's neither here nor there. But to see that response in the theater and to see the way that people reacted to it, I knew he'd done something special. What a lot of people don't realize about my dad is he was a theater arts major at UCLA. So, you know, acting and, and comedy had always been just kind of in his wheelhouse. Even back in the day, you know, he used to make, you know, he was always ahead of his time in terms of having camera equipment and stuff like that. So him and his buddies, when he was a rookie second year player in Milwaukee, they make all types of home movies and just stuff, just clowning around, cracking jokes, messing around with each other. So he always had that in him. And I think he really instilled a lot of that in, in me and my brothers and sisters and just how we move and how we operate. We always kept a light mood around the house. You know, jokes were always flying. And like I said, you know, it's like being in a basketball locker room, you, you know, a football locker room. You're going to get clowned a lot. So you're either going to get clowned and deal with it or you're going to fight back and, and, you know, stay on your toes and always be ready. So I think me and all my brothers, we can't, you know, there's nothing that the outside world can do to us that can really phase us because we, we've been getting it from each other our whole lives. So it's not like a big issue. But it's funny. My dad was obviously, you know, a five-time All-Star, uh, you know, College Hall of Famer, first John Wooden Award winner, uh, you know, you know, all pro during his career, but nobody really remembers that. And now he's even a, a Naismith Hall of Fame basketball finalist. Nobody remembers that. They remember Raymond from White Man Can't Jump. You know what I'm saying? That's anywhere he goes now after that movie came out. Like, they don't remember all, you know, the, the crazy stuff, dunking on Dr. J and all that good stuff. They remember uh going to my car, getting my other gun. But I think that's just a testament to, to, to his ability to make that role iconic. And you see me, I still drop the meme at least four to five times a year when it's an appropriate moment just to show him love and, you know, make him crack up. I look forward to every single year your father on, is, is it birthday or whatever, where he goes to dunk? I look forward to that, man. Because I, look, I'm a basketball, I mean, I grew up basketball. So that's my thing. Very familiar with your family. Very familiar with your brothers, Chris, all, all you guys. And so what, what brings me to my next question is, 
your father, so good at basketball, there had to be some type of, if you will, pressure. You did well in high school. You went to UCLA, considered the Mecca when it comes to basketball. Your father, to the point where Michael Jordan had your father as a poster on his wall. That's how real your dad was at basketball. So at what point, when you were at UCLA, did you wake up and say, I don't think I'm going to have an NBA career like that. Tell us about that moment. Well, you know, going to UCLA, the thing about my dad, he was 6'6", but he had the nice physique, the eight-pack, the 40-inch-plus vertical. I didn't really have all that growing up. So I kind of, you know, I had to rely on my shooting, my post game. There's a lot of the post work and stuff he instilled in us. But I remember, for me, it was a particular moment. You know, I'm in the locker room. I'm looking at guys like Dan Gazarich, who was, you know, 6'11", like 3% body fat, just a, a animal of nature, you know, size 13 shoe. He could run a five-minute mile. You know, he, he could – just the stuff that he could do in the exports. And I had to guard Dan in practice often. I'm just like, yeah, I don't know if it's going to work out because this, this dude is a pro. I don't know if I'm at that level. I'm, I'm going to be a pro at something. It probably just ain't basketball. But playing with guys like Dan, like uh, Earl Watson, Trevor Ariza, Jason Capono – you know, all to when I was a senior, I was playing with guys like Jordan Farmer, Aaron Aflalo. You just notice a difference in, in their movements and their action on the court. And look, I, I was a pretty solid basketball player, obviously in the you know 99th percentile of people in the universe. But once you get to that that top 99.9 percentile, you know those guys are elite athletes that are going to make a lot of money. But at the same time, obviously, I, I, I could do things in other spaces. So I've been able to create a nice lane for myself, obviously with the entertainment and the comedy, everything else I'm doing. So they might have had a better athletic career, but I'm going to feel like I'm going to have a better creative career and I'm going to see them at the top. We're going to meet. So we'll see. We'll see whose resumes are better when it's all said and done. This is a risk, me asking you this, but I feel comfortable asking you this because if there's one thing that I've learned about success is that there's always a story. And I can say that from personal experience. I can say that from people that I've known. I can see and feel your energy in the way that you talk and the way that you seem to be so grateful for where you are today. So what I want to ask is for you to take us back. Did you, did you have a rock bottom moment? And I actually think you did talk about your rock bottom moment that propelled you to where you are today. Talk about that. I had two, actually two rock bottom moments. The first one was graduating college at uh, UCLA I mean, I have some opportunities to go overseas and play pro. I could have got French citizenship and, you know, played over there. But I see my older brother, Chris, who had done a similar trajectory. Obviously, Chris was a lot better than me. He came very, very close to playing in the NBA. Probably should have. You know, was a little bit undersized, but, you know, just had an amazing heart and amazing toughness. But he would go play in all these countries, make some nice money, but he'd be gone seven, eight months out of the year. You know, we'd only be able to correspond via email at that point in time, you know calling cards and all that stuff were super expensive back then. It was a lot more landline driven and, you know, cell phones just weren't, weren't at the level that they are now. So but to see him gone seven, eight months every year, you know, you, you're missing him. You know, and how lonely he is. And he's obviously a, he's a guy who can literally thrive in any condition, any situation, but to see him in just the situations he was dealing with the countries he was playing in and come back and only get to be in America for three or four months, to have to go back and do it again and just be by yourself all the time. It was something that I really didn't want to do. So after college ended, I really had no idea what was going to happen. So for about a good five, six months, I was just, you know, rock bottom. And believe my dad played in the NBA, so it wasn't ever an issue like I was just going to starve. But I'm also a prideful individual, and I didn't ever ask him or want anything from him as well. So 
trying to make it on my own, trying to, you know, I remember for me, rock bottom in college was trying to find a job. And I ended up working at this company that went door to door to sell printer paper. Don't know how I got the job. I believe I looked for it online. Hey, this looks good. It pays like 40 grand a year. You know, it was, it was, it was door to door, a business to business sales. But I remember spending a day with this guy in like uh, his, 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 his region or territory was like South Bay. So we went out to San Pedro going door to door trying to sell printer paper to these companies and I actually got them a sale because I went with them to a company and they recognized me from UCLA. So they ended up buying the paper. But I remember after that day and I'm wearing the suit that my dad gave me and I'm kind of just feeling miserable at that moment. After that day, it's like, yo, this is not the life for me. This is not the world for me. Whatever, whatever I'm going to do in life, I'm going to have to figure it out, but it ain't this. So, and another point uh, was going well. I, I worked at a bunch of different uh, sports networks, NFL network, Showtime, a bunch of spots. Uh, sold a show to Comedy Central called Legend of Chamberlain Heights. We had a good two-season run. But after that show got canceled for, for the better part of 11 months, I couldn't find a job. And part of it was, yeah, I could have found a job, but it wasn't a job that I felt like I deserved. So, you know, rather than going doing that, and I pondered, you know, driving Uber and doing other things that, you know, there's no shame in doing, but just felt that I deserved more and, and wanted better for myself. But was able to get get back on my feet, get my life together. My wife was super instrumental in just being super supportive and and really helping me kind of figure out my vision, did a lot of writing, did a lot of just, you know, growing and looking myself in the mirror. But that was back like 2017 to 2018. And a lot of people don't realize just how depressed and how low I was at that point. But then I found salvation in social media and also in the entertainment industry, had a great support system, had a lot of people who believed in me, people like Michael Starberry, who was a co-creator of Legend of Chamberlain Heights with me. Also was a showrunner on uh, Colin in Black and White, a show I was fortunate enough to be a part of with Ava DuVernay and Colin Kaepernick. But people like that who, who, who came back, reached back, and just, you know, gave me opportunities and opportunities to thrive and shine, and I was able to take the ball and run with it. And obviously also I recognized the importance of social media and the ability that it had that you didn't have to be at the mercy. A lot of people don't realize that or they do with the entertainment industry. You know, it's a lot of rejection. It's a lot of going to pitching shows with people and you think you might have the best project, the best idea. You go pitch networks, networks don't agree with you. So they pass on it and you got to kind of deal with that shame and humiliation and rejection and not feeling like you're good enough. But I was able to find salvation in social media and the ability to tweet out content and things that I thought was good and get to see a reaction in real time. So a lot of that stuff has proven to be successful. Again, like you mentioned earlier, getting co-signed to people like LeBron James, people like John Legend, people like Ava DuVernay who's mentioning that she's sending my memes to Oprah and group chats and things like that. It really got me, got me to take a step back and realize no matter how low you get in life or where you're at, and this is something I preach. And to your point, I am so grateful about everything. I try to be so respectful of everybody in their craft is no matter how low you get in, get in life, you can pick yourself back up. You have to pull yourself back up because if you quit, nobody's going to care. Everybody has their own things that they deal with. Everybody has their own issues, their own problems, and they don't need to burden themselves worrying about your issues as well. And I would never want to burden anyone with my issues. So I just always took that to heart. And it's like, look, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep grinding. And I'm going to try and get to the level that I believe that I deserve. And, and once I've gotten here and I continue to grow, I try to give back as much as possible, whether that's people DMing me, reaching out, any questions they may have. Sometimes people just need to hear somebody being supportive and say, yes, you can do it. Look at me. Like I'm a former basketball player that sold a television show to Comedy Central and is now getting called the go by LeBron James. Anything is possible in life if you, you believe that you can achieve it. And as a kid, I used to go to Michael Cooper's basketball camps. And Michael Cooper, the one thing he used to always say that stuck with me is never be satisfied. And as a kid, I never really understood what that meant. But now I've gone later on in life. And no matter what level of success you get, don't ever be satisfied with that. You can always do more. Because when you start believing your own hype and drinking your own Kool-Aid, that's when you, you, you ripen yourself to fall from the throne and get knocked off of whatever pedestal that you're trying to climb up. Somebody is watching this right now. 
and super follows is a thing on Twitter. And right now you can follow super follow at King Josiah 54 right now. And one of the things you just recently said, you said that you're going to be dropping some exclusive content for your super followers. And what you said was, is you every week you can be giving folks game as it happens with social media. And you said one of those things was finding your lane. Can you explain finding your lane? So somebody right now wants has wants that opportunity. They got a lot of things in their mind. They're creative. They have content, but they're listening right now. What do you mean by finding your lane? It's really exploring the thing that you're passionate about, the thing that you're interested in, the job that even if you didn't get paid, you'd be doing that job. For me, I love basketball, obviously. I love the NBA. I love college basketball. I love all levels of basketball. So NBA Twitter was a natural lane for me. And, you know, when I started on Twitter, NBA Twitter didn't really exist. It was kind of a hodgepodge. It wasn't really a thriving community like it is today. But not only now is it a thriving community, it's a successful community where you can actually earn a nice living. And I, I have to pinch myself sometimes looking at the different deals that I'm able to, to secure and the opportunities that I'm able to get as a result of what I've been able to do on social. And like I said, social is great because everybody can have it. And I love Twitter as a platform because no matter how big or small your following is, you have the potential to grow it and get to the level that you want to get to. If you put out good content continuously and consistently, your, your, your following will continue to grow. So when I tell people find your lanes, I'm saying find the things that are important to you, the things that you want to talk about. That could be the NFL. That could be music. That could be movies. That could be art. That could be anything that, that you want to gravitate towards. Generally, you want to focus on buckets and pockets of things that have a huge amount of interest amongst other people. Obviously, there's close to a billion basketball fans around the world, right? So – thing like NBA Twitter, there's going to be tons of people who are looking constantly. And I'm also a big LeBron fan. And as an extension of that, now a Lakers fan, now that he's chosen to come to that squad. So these are our big buckets of content that you can get into and that you can talk about. So finding your lane means kind of finding your lane, but also finding your voice, finding the things that you want to talk about. And once you discover that, always look at people who have been successful in your craft, no matter what you're doing. Look at those people and don't question them. Don't hate. Don't say, damn, why are they successful? And I'm not. Look why they're successful. I even tell people, look at the stuff I tweet. Look at when I tweet it. Look at how I tweet it. For me, I've, I've developed a great lane on being as topical as possible. That means when news breaks, let me find an angle or way into that particular story or subject that'll be unique from what everybody else is doing, but will also make you think, make you laugh, make you cry, whatever, whatever emotion I'm trying to elicit at that particular moment. But that came from years and years and years of studying research. And that was all an extension of when I was working on Legend of Chamberlain Heights. I was running the social media account for that show. So I'm like, look, in order for me to make this show successful, I have to look at other shows that are successful, shows like Insecure, shows like South Park, shows like Game of Thrones, and just realize how are they able to create a lane and create a community around their particular show and create a conversation around their show every week. So I did all that in addition to I'm going to take a deep dive in all these meme accounts because I would always notice, damn, these memes are getting tens of thousands of retweets, and they seem to be very easy to, to put together just depending on what's going on in the world. So it was kind of finding that sweet spot and that balance. So for, for that's what I try to convey to other people. And with the super follows, I'm super blessed and super thankful for Twitter to give me the opportunity. But even like I told the Twitter team when they first reached out and asked me if I wanted to be a part of it, it was like, look, if I'm going to charge people, I've built my kind of whole lane on just giving back to the people being kind of like Tesla. Here's the source code. But at the end of the day, you go to the, uh, the lot to go buy a Tesla, you have to put up some bread for it. So, you know, I can give you all the source code, but if you want to dig deeper now, really push this Tesla around, you're going to have to break a little bit of bread, but. I basically equate it like this for, for less than $5 a month, the price of one combo meal 
every week I'm going to be blessing people with game. Any of my super followers now know they can ask me questions and I'm going to do my best to try and answer them as best as I can. And also just be a motivating, positive force. Like you mentioned before, that's something that's super, super important to me is to be able to give back and encourage people and let them know. I don't think, you know, I I think I'm special, but I don't think I'm I'm unique in the fact that I'm the only one who can do it. I'll gladly help people try to get to that level, gladly teach them the stuff that I've learned, teach them how to avoid the pitfalls that I've dealt with that will hopefully make their game easier. Because like I said before, I've had so many people that have taken time out of their day, time out of their lives to reach out, give back, answer questions, give me a pat on the back, give me just some motivation when, when they might not even realize, but I needed it the most. So I love n- nothing more than to see somebody be able to help them out and then see them become successful. Like there's plenty of room at the top, no matter what people may try to tell you, there's plenty of room. And I don't really look at people anymore as competition. For for me, it's like, look, we're all in this world together. We're all in this community together. Let's all try to thrive, man. You know what I'm saying? Like we can all get bread. I don't need... I don't need everything. I, I think if there's anything this pandemic has taught us is that we've all got to take a step back and be willing to help our fellow men and women, you know, get, yeah. get whatever they need to be, be healthy, be successful and just succeed and advance in this world. So that's the thing I want to try and do with my super follows. I told the people on Twitter, I'm like, look, people pay me $5 a month. I got to give them at least $50 a month worth of game, if not more, you know, hopefully get it to that million dollar level. So look for $60 a year, you're going to basically get a college course on social media. And I think a lot of people hopefully will be able to get jobs out of this. And as a result, they're going to get that 60 back very easily. Follow at King Josiah 54 super follows. I got a couple more questions before you go. You know, your boy appreciates your time. What you working on, man? I, go ahead. I know, I know there's some projects you can't tell us about. What are some projects you can tell us about? What you doing? I mean, the thing I'm obviously the most excited about now is Colin in black and white, which uh, we got finally a premiere date. So we worked on that show 2019 to 2020. Uh, obviously, it was in production during the, the corona pandemic. Ava and her crew over at Array just did an amazing, tremendous job making this thing come together, but also being so so mindful of health and safety protocols and doing doing everything that was necessary to maintain the health of the crew in terms of getting the situation completed. So this thing is going to be unique because it takes a look at Colin in high school it really reveals a side of him that a lot of people aren't aware of. It just shows that a lot of the stuff he's, he, he, that led him to social activism, things like that, those scenes were planted very, very early in his life. And he always had it inside of him. And just to get the opportunity to sit in the same room as Kyle and look him in the eye and ask him like, yo, bro, do you even want to play football? And to see his response and him look at me like that was the dumbest question that anybody could have possibly <laughs> asked him. Cause you, you see all the misinformation out there. Everybody seems to have an opinion on Colin. He didn't want to do this. It's all about this. It's all about that. Now at the end of the day, which I think we all deal with, especially in this George Floyd situation we saw is that you just get fed up at one, at, at one point or another with just the BS that goes on in this country, the social injustice, the police brutality, the things that are easily correctable. And especially as a black man and woman in this country, the things that we constantly deal with and people just seem to think that we should just be happy that we live in America without really taking a deeper look at all the issues that are still underlying and still Still very, very, very public going on. So to see Colin sacrifice his career, sacrifice the opportunity to do what he loves. And at that point, he was working out five, six times a week still. We were actually in the writer's room. He came by, and uh, that's when he got the call to find out about the Atlanta workout. And just to see how happy he was, how happy he was to go out there and prove what he could still do, but also hesitant knowing. And we were all in the room just kind of saying, man, this, this smells fishy. And, you know, you, you know how the NFL gets down. And, you know, it just was like, yo, this doesn't seem like it seems like more of a show than actually being authentic and genuine and real. We come to find out that's exactly what it was. But just to be able to know Colin, all the stuff he's doing for the community with the Know Your Rights camp and everything else going on in his world and how consistent he still is, even though, you know, he doesn't, you know, 
take the limelight and all those stuff behind the scenes. He's still working hard, still grinding. So that's obviously a show I'm super passionate about. And like I said, to get the opportunity to work with Ava DuVernay, who went to UCLA like myself, who's somebody I've always just envied and look, looked up to. And I will give her her flowers as often as much as I can because to see what Ava's doing, not only with projects like this, but a lot of people don't realize just documentaries, films she buys up for and stuff, the opportunities to people that she gives that are generally marginalized by Hollywood and the entertainment industry and the things that she continues to do to uplift and build and just give people opportunities and resources, looking at shows like Queen Sugar and, and just how hard she's gone for to give female directors opportunities to shine and grow. And what a, a great, you know, valuable resource she is. And also being able to work with Michael Starberry, who I said before was a co-creator on Legends of Chamberlain Heights, uh, was Emmy nominated with Ava for When They See Us, was a writer on that. And this was his first show running gig. So just to be with him, I was, I've known Starberry since like 2009. So just to be in the same room as him as he now takes that leadership role and just, you know, he, he's like my LeBron in terms of writing. So LeBron called me the GOAT. I call him the GOAT of writing because if, if you read this brother's writing and his screen, his way he can write a script and a screenplay, but also the way he can look at other people's work and just get it on the same level as his. I did a joke with him a lot. Like, look, bro, you LeBron of this stuff. So, you know, I'm going to try and get to your level, but I might only be able to get to a, a Zodrunas Ilgowskis level or something like that, but I'm going to need you to go ahead and get, get me over to the finish line. But just to be a part of him and just to see all the work and the tremendous crew we had, you know, Terry Schaefer, Raynell Swilling, who are our co-EPs and also showrunners on another project that I worked on. Uh, Evan Ball, who's an immensely talented writer, Natasha Trotter, who was a writer on, on one of the scripts as well, and the rest of our crew there, just to see the way we bonded as a team, being able to work with Colin and his team and work with Ava and, and the folks at Array in addition to Netflix. That's what I'm super excited about. I also got another show that I'm doing with Ava called Cherish Today that's in production right now that I said before, Terry Schaefer and Raynell Swilling, who are co-EPs on that, two of the most talented black women I think I've ever been fortunate enough to be around. But they were my showrunners on that show and just to get an opportunity to learn from them and have them guide me just obviously amazingly talented, beautiful writers and just making me strong. So I'm doing that. I'm obviously working with Wave, doing out of the pocket for a Wave, which I love the folks over there. Wave is a Wave is an up and comer, man. A lot of people are going to be surprised by how quickly they're going to be able to take over the game because they got a lot of good stuff figured out. Also working with Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson on an animated project that I'm super excited about based on their lives. In addition to, I got five, six other things I'm writing and working on. My thing is I always just try to stay as busy as possible because in the entertainment game, you never know the thing that's going to hit, but once it hits, you got to just go for it, go get them bags and keep, keep growing. You're right about that. I, I do have a list of people that I want to interview one day. And of course you are on that list, but I got to tell you, Ava is for sure on that list. And one day, Ava, if you're listening to this, I hope it happens one day. Last question before we get you out. You are joining my podcast. It's called Leaving a Legacy. And, man, first of all, I want to tell you how grateful I am for you to take the time to come on it. I'm so appreciative. One of the questions that I've asked everyone that has been a part of this show is about their legacy. And what would you like for your legacy to be, brother? I think for me, as I've gotten older now, and I'm almost 40 years old, it's, the legacy I'd like to leave is just to be able to, to help and get people to that next level. Like, I realize I'm not going to be on social and some of these other things I'm doing for the rest of my lives. I don't, I don't imagine myself 70, 80 years old, still live tweeting and getting jokes off. Maybe it's possible, but maybe not. But in the interim, there's a lot of information, and a lot of knowledge that I've been able to, to gain from the things that I've done. A lot of just practical knowledge from, from the failures in addition to the successes. So to be a resource, the legacy I want to have is to try and help as many other people as possible, especially people that look like me, that look like you. Obviously, I know in this world, especially in the spaces that I work in and social, 
it, representation is not where it needs to be. You know, you're talking about, you know, NBA 60 to 70% black. If you look at a lot of the social teams for NBA teams, it may be six to 7% black. NFL 60 to 70% black. You look at the social representation for a lot of those teams, it may be 10 to 12% black. You know, it, it's never at the level that it needs to be. And it needs to, you know, one day we'll get to the point where it matches these leagues and everybody always looks, well, how do we do that? Well, we identify talent. We give them the resources and the skills to succeed. We don't just hire them to hire them because we're checking a box and saying, oh, well, we hired a black person. No, we hire somebody that we feel like is capable and intelligent. And that's kind of been my goal now is to seek these people out and to let them know how smart they are and to let them know that maybe things that they didn't believe that they could achieve or accomplish are very, very attainable. I'm like, look at me. I'm a former washed up basketball player now getting getting called to go by LeBron and getting the opportunity to work with people like Ava, to your point, I hope you do get to interview her one day. And I, I got a sneaky suspicion that she might actually listen to this thing. Ava consumes so much content, so much media, but just to be around her, you know, a quick story. First time, you know, Ava is kind of this big figure that you build up in your mind, right? Cause you just see her. She walked into the room with her, with her iced coffee and just sitting. It's just like, I'm stuttering, fumbling. I don't want to mess up. I'm sweating. I don't want to say nothing dumb. But just to be around her and now have a level of comfort around her. And the one thing she always do, she always keep it real. So I think she's been very inspirational, influential in how I move. People like Shay Serrano as well. People like Matthew Cherry, always taking time out of their day, out of their lives to give back to others. And that's something I really pride myself on. It's something I really want to continue in terms of what my legacy is. My legacy, when people talk about me, I want them to know, yeah, man, like he, he went out of his way all the time to try and help people. He wanted to be a resource for people to be able to grow and learn and, and get to his level. And, and for me, in any industry, especially entertainment and social, a lot of times you work with people that look like you and they don't want you to advance or succeed because they feel like that's going to take away from their own advancement. I look at it like, look, the more of us that get to advance and succeed, now when that next generation walks through the door, it's going to be so much easier for them. And I'm, I'm not looking at like, oh, my, 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 my life was hard, so yours got to be hard too. It's like, no, I want yours to be as easy as possible. Mm. You know, I've been able to exp- I've been able to experience nepotism, obviously having a dad playing the NBA. And it's like, damn, I know a lot of these white kids also get that because there are a lot of white kids I went to private school with that, that have jobs that they maybe didn't earn or whatever, but they get into those positions and they perform. So I would love to see that. You know, Shea Serrano, I think, tweeted something that, that had me cracking up the other day. He was like, you know, I want my kids to have those articles where, like, you know, they, they, they built themselves up from nothing. And, you know, somewhere in the article they talk about how dad gave them a $700,000 loan. Like, you see those all the time. For people that don't look like us, I would I would love to see more of that. So my legacy is just being able to help as many people as possible, entertain people through tough times like this pandemic, where I just want to make people smile. So they see the content and they see me always trying to be in a good mood. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of times when I'm depressed, I'm frustrated. There's a, a gamut of emotions that I go through, but I always want people to know that they can come to my page and smile no matter what's going on in the world, no matter if it's a pandemic, endemic, whatever's going on whatever family troubles, financial troubles, whatever things that they're dealing with, they could take a few moments out of the day and just know that, you know, things will hopefully get better and get back on that right path. So, you know, when you talk about leaving a legacy, I think it's important for all of us to do as much as we can to to care about our fellow, you know, our fellow humans, animals, everything, and just do, do, do whatever we can to try and give back as much as we can and get people to that same level we're at. Because ultimately I tell people, young kids all the time, like I hope that you get to this level one day and feel free to reach out to me. You can hit me at any point. You can hit me at 3 in the morning. I may not get back to you till I wake up around 6.37, but hit me, and I'll always try to get back to you, always try to give you some game and some knowledge. So that's the thing I want to kind of leave as my legacy. The king of Twitter. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you for joining us. And, I, I look, I know you won't say it. You won't write it down anywhere, but you are the king of Twitter, my man. Thank you. Josiah. It, it makes me – 
that makes me crack up. Every time people say, I'm like, yo, I don't, I don't ever try to believe my wife. I just keep grinding because I may be the king today, but if I don't bring it tomorrow, then I ain't going to be the king tomorrow. So I'm trying to keep it going. Fair enough, man. Hey, I appreciate you, brother. Blessings to you and your family. And, man, I can't wait to see what you got up your sleeves next.